This is Jocko Podcast number 20 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Around 8 p.m. on September 21st, 2007, the authorities notified me that I should go for a mind re-education talk. I found there were some unusual things happening at this time. The secret police, who used to follow me very closely, kept a further distance. I was walking down the street one day, and then, when I turned a corner, about six or seven strangers started walking towards me. I suddenly felt a strong blow to the back of my neck and fell face down on the ground. Someone yanked my hair, and a black black hood was pulled over my head immediately. I was brought to a vehicle and was put in it. I couldn't see, but it seemed that I had two benches with a space in the middle. I was put in the space in the middle of the floor. My right cheek was on the ground. All of a sudden, a boot was put on my face, holding me down. Many hands started searching all over me. My belt was pulled off and used to tie my hands behind my back. At least four people put their feet on me, holding me down. About 40 minutes later, I was dragged out of the car. My pants were falling down around my knees, and I was dragged into a room. No one said anything at all to me until that time. The hood was pulled off my head at this time. Immediately, men began cursing and hitting me. One of the men said, Your date of death has come today. Brothers, let's give him a brutal lesson today. Beat him to death. Then four men with electric shock prods began beating my head and all over my body. Nothing but noise and the beating of my anxious breathing could be heard. I was beaten so severely that my whole body began uncontrollably shaking. Don't pretend to do that. I was shouted out by a guy whom I later learned was named Wang. Then a very strong and tall man grabbed my hair and pulled me up off the ground. Then Wang began beating me on the face terribly. You are not worthy to wear clothes. Pull off all of his clothes. All of my clothes were pulled off and I was totally naked. Wang yelled again and someone kicked me in the back of my legs and I collapsed to the floor. The big guy continued to pull my hair and forced me to lift my head to see Wang. At this time, I could see that there were five people in the room. Four of the men were holding electric prods and one was holding my belt. You listen, gal. Today your uncles want nothing but to make your life worse than death. While Wang was saying this, the electric shock prods were put on my face and upper body, shocking me. Wang then said, come on guys, deliver the second course. Then the electric shock baton was put all over me, and my full body, my heart, lungs, and muscles began jumping under my skin uncontrollably. I was writhing around on the ground in pain, trying to crawl away. Wang then shocked me in my genitals. My begging them to stop only returned laughing and more unbelievable torture. Wang then used the electric shock baton three more times on my genitals while shouting loudly. After a few hours of this, I had no energy to even beg, let alone try to escape. But my mind was still clear. It seems that the torturers themselves were also tired. 
Before the dawn came, three of them left the room. We will come back later to give him the next course, Wang said. I asked, how can you face the beating of Chinese and use mafia tactics on Chinese taxpayers? You are an object to be beaten. You know that in your heart better than most. Taxpayers count for nothing in China. Don't talk about this term, taxpayers. While he was saying this, someone else also entered the room. I recognized the voice to be Wang's. Don't talk to him with your mouth. Give him the real thing. Your uncles have repaired 12 courses. We only finished three last night. Your chief uncle doesn't like to talk. And so following you will see that you will have to eat your own shit and drink your own piss. Don't you talk about torture by the Communist Party yet. Because we will give you a comprehensive lesson now. I am not afraid of you if you continue to write. We can torture you to death without your body being found. In the following hours of torture, I passed out several times because of lack of water and food and heavy sweating. I was lying down on the cold floor, naked. I felt several times someone come and open my eyes and shine a flashlight into them to see if I was still alive. When I would come to, I smelled the strong odor of stinky urine. My face, nose, and hair were filled with the smell. Obviously, but I don't know when, someone urinated on my face and head. This torture continued until around noon of the third day. I don't know where I got the strength to endure, but somehow I struggled to get away from their grasp and began to beat my head on the table. I was shouting the names of my two children and trying to kill myself. But my attempt did not succeed. I thank Almighty God for this. It was Him who rescued me. I truly felt God drag me back from that state and give me my life. My eyes were full of bleeding through, though because of my head banging. I fell on the ground. Immediately, three people sat on my body. One was on my face. They were laughing. They said I used my death to try and scare them. They said they have just seen this too many times. They then continued the torture again until that night. I could not see anything with my eyes anymore. Every day while I was being held, the experience of eating was unusual. Whenever I was at the point of starving, they would bring up mantle, which was steamed bread, and offer it to me. If I would sing one of the three famous revolutionary communist party songs, I could have some bread. My deepest desire was that I wanted to live until that was no longer possible. My death would be torturous for my wife and children, but at the same time, I didn't want to dirty my soul. But in that environment, human dignity has no strength. If you don't sing these songs, you will continue to be starved and they will continue to torture you. So I sang. When they used the same tactic, though, pressuring me to write articles attacking Falun Gong, I didn't do it. But I compromised by writing my statement saying that the government didn't kidnap me and torture me and that they treated me and my family well. 
I did sign that document. During these more than 50 days, more horrible evils were committed than I told here. Those evils were not even worthy of any historical records by any human governments. But those records will further enable us to see clearly that how much further the leaders of CCP are willing to go in its evil crime against humanity in order to protect its illegal monopoly power. Those evils are so dirty and disgusting that I don't want to mention it at this time and perhaps will never mention it in the future. Every time when I was tortured, I was always repeatedly threatened that if I spelled out later what had happened to me, I would be tortured again. But this time I was told, this time it will happen in front of your wife and children. The tall, strong man that pulled my hair repeated this over and over during the seven days I was tortured. Your death is sure if you share this with the outside world. This was repeated many times. These brutal, violent acts are not right. Those that did it themselves knew this clearly in their hearts. So that's a a note from a guy named Gao Zicheng who is a Christian lawyer in China that defended Christians and became an enemy of the Chinese communist state. And again, this is 2007 that this occurred. And the reason I started off with that tonight is because we're going to delve into some material that comes from Mao Zedong who is, you know, one of the most famous and powerful and communist leaders ever. And the reason that I got interested in this is if you remember or if you went and read About Face by David Hackworth, he talks about making all of his subordinates read Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. And, you know, when I heard Hack say to read that, I read it many years ago. And although that's an interesting read, it actually led me to a better read, also by Mao Zedong, that I got more out of. And the, the, the version that I got was originally put out by the Marine Corps. And it analyzed and translated Mao Zedong's book, Yu Chi Chan, which means guerrilla warfare. And I wanted, the reason I wanted to start off with this shocking tale of torture was because I, I wanted to make sure that I highlighted Mao's legacy. This is, you know, a guy that's responsible for millions upon millions of deaths from disease and starvation and systematic executions and deaths in these labor camps called reform through labor. So, oh, you're not quite fitting in? Cool, we'll work you to death. And the the estimates for the number of people that that died as a result of him being in power is between 
40 and 80 million. He's the he's at the top of the list. He's above Stalin, he's above Hitler. And the mistreatment of people continues. You know, Gao Zichung, who I just read, who started it off tonight. But, you know, even now, I just saw a news story about Ding Kumai, who's the wife of a reverend who, in April, this year, this month, stood in front of a bulldozer to stop the state-ordered demolition of a church, and they just pushed her into the ditch and buried her alive. So this is still happening. And so I want to make it perfectly clear that there is massive amounts of evil and depression wrapped up in Mao Zedong. Now, what is interesting, and this is, you know, probably why Hack, in fact, it is why Hackworth, you know, read this and had his people read it is because the military and leadership theories that he espouses, they actually align with my own principles of leadership, which is crazy. And, and it's, it's shocking because, I mean, this guy's literally one of the founders of the Chinese Communist Party. And obviously, I'm a believer in democracy. And specifically, specifically, I'm a believer in individual freedom of human beings. But like I said, interestingly, you'll see that many of the leadership principles that I talk about and that I believe in, Mao utilized them and taught them when he was trying to run military and insurgent operations. And, and it doesn't surprise me because I know what motivates people and I know how to, I know the principles that work. But what is surprising is that he didn't take these leadership principles and lead a nation like that. So you're going to see that very clearly when we go, when we go through this. And you know, part of it's probably has to do with the, the, the famous quote from Lord Acton, which is power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So it's either that, either he got corrupted or maybe he never realized that the way you lead in combat is the way you need to lead in life and in business, the way you lead people. Unfortunately, he never realized that. So, to start this off, this is an introduction and analysis. This starts off with an introduction and analysis of Mao Zedong and his principles. That was done by a guy named Brigadier General Samuel B. Griffith, United States Marine Corps. And to put a little background on General Griffith... He served as the executive officer and later commander of the 1st Marine Raiders Battalion on Guadalcanal. He served as the executive officer of the 1st Raider Regiment in operations on New Georgia. He received the Navy Cross 
which is only second to the Medal of Honor on Guadalcanal. September 1942, for extreme heroism and courageous devotion to duty during the fighting near the Mantanao River. During this action, Griffith suffered wounds for which he was awarded the Purple Heart. For his exploits in July in New Georgia, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. So this guy's highly decorated, and here's the bonus here. He spoke Chinese. And he was stationed in China several times. So this is the guy that actually translated this book from Chinese to English. So I don't think you could possibly come up with a better person to to base this translation off of than, than General Griffith. Pretty awesome to have that kind of person and still be able to look at his work. So let's get into this book here. Mao Zedong on Guerrilla Warfare, translated by Samuel B. Griffith. Mao Zedong, the man who was to don the mantle of Lenin, was born in Hunan province in central China in 1893. His father, an industrious farmer, had managed to acquire several acres and with this land the status of a middle peasant. He was a strict disciplinarian, and Mao's youth was not a happy one. The boy was in constant conflict with his father, but found an ally in his mother, whose indirect tactics, as he once described her methods of coping with her husband, appealed to him. So we already get a little flag here. You know, here was this guy, and he looked at the way his mom dealt with his dad, and she used these indirect tactics. Mm -hmm. I talk about that all the time. And you're going to see that he uses these indirect tactics in a, in a military way as well. Shortly after grad, back to the book, shortly after graduating from normal school in 1917, Mao accepted a position as assistant in the Peking University Library. Here, he associated himself with Marxist study groups. Here, he discovered Lenin, read his essays, poured over Trotsky's explosive speeches, and began to study Marx and Engels. By 1920, Mao was a convinced communist and a man who had discovered his mission to create a new China according to the doctrine of Marx and Lenin. When the CCP was organized in Shanghai in 1921, Mao joined. So that's sort of where it begins. And now skipping through some of the evolution and getting right into strategy, tactics, and logistics in revolutionary war. Here's one of his quotes. The first law of war is to preserve ourselves and destroy the enemy. Very simple. You know, I talk about simplicity all the time. We wrote about it in the book. Is there any more simple principle to, to, to wage war other than the first law of war is to preserve ourselves and destroy the enemy? Mao has never claimed that guerrilla action alone is decisive in a struggle for political control of the state, but only that it is a possible, natural, and necessary development 
in an agrarian-based revolutionary war. So he's not, he doesn't think it can do everything, but he knows it pays a very critical part. Revolutions rarely compromise. Compromises are made only to further the strategic design. I'll read that again. Compromises are made only to further the strategic design. Negotiation then is undertaken for the dual purpose of gaining time to buttress a position and to wear down, frustrate, and harass an opponent. So this is, you know, again, we, we've talked about this on the last podcast. You know, it's not about being right. You make those compromises because you're trying to win the war, not the battle. Mm-hmm. Intelligence is the defi- decisive factor in planning guerrilla operations. Where is the enemy? In what strength? What does he propose to do? What is the state of his equipment, his supply, his morale? Are his leaders intelligent, bold, and imaginative, or stupid? Are his troops tough, efficient, and well-disciplined, or poorly trained and soft? Guerrillas expect the members of their intelligence service to provide the answers to these and dozens of more detailed questions. Guerrilla intelligence nets are tightly organized and pervasive. In a guerrilla area, every person, without exception, must be considered an agent. Old men and women, boys driving ox carts, girls tending goats, farm laborers, storekeepers, school teachers, priests, boatmen, scavengers. So when you're dealing with a guerrilla situation, everybody's an intelligence gatherer. And that's how you have to treat them all. As a corollary, guerrillas deny all information of themselves to their enemy, who is enveloped in an impenetrable fog this is a characteristic feature feature of all guerrilla wars the enemy stands on a lighted stage from the darkness around him thousands of unseen eyes intently study his every move his every gesture when he strikes out he hits air his antagonists are insubstantial as intangible as fleeting shadows in the moonlight That's a great, great way of looking at it. Back to the book. Because of superior information, guerrillas always engage under conditions of their own choosing. Because of superior knowledge of terrain, they are able to use their advantage and the enemy's discomfiture. Guerrillas fight only when the chances of victory are weighed heavily in their favor. What a great tactic. Only fight when chances of victory are weighed heavily in their favor. If the tide of battle unexpectedly flows against them, they withdraw. Hmm. They rely only on imaginative leadership, distraction, surprise, and mobility to create victorious situation before the battle is joined. This is all stuff to think about in everything that you do. Why are you going into a battle if you have not prepared and set the situation up where you're going to be victorious? If you start losing, don't stand there and take a beating. Just walk away, fade away. Mm -hmm. The enemy is deceived and again deceived. Attacks are sudden, sharp, vicious, and of short duration. 
Many are harassing in nature. Others are designed to dislocate the enemy's plans and to agitate and confuse his commanders. The mind of the enemy and the will of his leaders is a target of far more importance than the bodies of his troops. So this is an attack on the will of the leaders. And how do you do that? You confuse him. You harass him. Mao once remarked, not entirely false, that guerrillas must be experts at running away since they do it so often. They avoid static dispositions. Their effort is always to keep the situation as fluid as possible to strike where and when the enemy least expects them. Only in this way can they retain the initiative and so be assured of freedom of action. And this is exactly, you know, this is what Hackworth wanted to do in Vietnam. He wanted to fight the guerrillas. He calls them G's in the book. He wanted to fight the G like a G. He wanted to fight the guerrillas like guerrillas. And that was what upset him so bad. So we kept doing these big conventional operations. Well, you do a big conventional operation, the enemy disappears. Mm -hmm. They leave behind some booby traps for you. They take some sniper shots. They hit you with some indirect fire. You take casualties. They don't because they disappeared. Yeah. Guerrilla operations conducted over a wide region are necessarily decentralized. Each regional commander must be familiar with the local conditions and take advantage of local opportunities. The same applies to commands in subordinate districts. This decentralized de decentralization is to some extent forced upon the guerrillas because they lack a well-developed system of technical communications. But, at the same time, decentralization for normal operations has many advantages, particularly if local leaders are ingenious and bold. One of the laws of combat that Leif and I write about in the book, right? Decentralized command. You've got to let your subordinate leaders lead. You have to do it. You have to let the people... Know what, know what the strategy is and let them go execute. And what's so bizarre about this, this is not the way a communist government runs. They control everything. They try and control everything. Nothing, everything is centralized. Mm. Everything is centralized. And that's why it doesn't work. Mm. The enemy, back to the book, the enemy's rear is the guerrilla's front. They themselves have no rear. Their logistical problems are solved in a direct and elementary fashion. The enemy is the principal source of weapons, equipment, and ammunition. Such the gorilla says. They don't have to worry about logistics. They don't have to worry about supply. They're going to get it from their enemy. Mao once said, we have a claim on the output of the arsenals of London as well as of Hang Yang. And what is more, it is to be delivered to us by the enemy's own transport corps. This is the sober truth, not a joke. Mm -hmm. So they have, they, where do they get their weapons from? Their enemy. Mm -hmm. And their enemy just delivers them to them. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to examine Mao's strategical and tactical theories in the light of his principle, unity of opposites. 
Okay, so Mao had this principle, unity of opposites. Um, you may have, this might seem a little bit familiar if you've read the book, if you've read our book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, right? Mm-hmm. There are opposites. So, so here's Mao's princi- uh, principle called unity of opposites. This seems, to, back to the book, this seems to be an adaptation to military action of the ancient Chinese philosophical concept of yin-yang. Briefly, the yin and yang are elemental and pervasive. Of opposite polarities, they represent male and female, dark and light, cold and heat, recession and aggression. Their reciprocal interaction is endless. So, again, you know, people, people have said, hey, now I know a new word, dichotomy. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. It's dichotomy. It's opposing forces. And in, now this just gets even more aligned. An important postulate of the yin-yang theory is that concealed within strength, there is weakness. And within weakness, strength. It is a weakness of gorillas that they operate in small groups that can be wiped out in a matter of minutes. But because they do operate in small groups, they can move rapidly and secretly into the vulnerable rear of the enemy. In conventional tactics, dispersion of forces invites destruction. In guerrilla war, this very tactic is desirable both to confuse the enemy and to preserve the the illusion that the guerrillas are ubiquitous. It is often, often a disadvantage not to have heavy infantry and heavy infantry weapons available. But the very fact of having to transport them has until recently tied conventional columns to roads and well-used tracks. The gorilla travels light and travels fast. He turns the hazard of terrain into his advantage and makes an ally of tropical rains, heavy snow, intense heat, and freezing cold. Long night marches are difficult and dangerous, but the darkness shields his approach to an unsuspecting enemy. In every apparent disadvantage, some advantage is to be found. In other words, good. (laughs) The converse is equally true. In each apparent advantage lie the seeds of disadvantage. The yin is not holy yin, nor the yang holy yang. It is only the wise general, said the ancient Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu, who is able to recognize this fact and turn it to a good account. Guerrilla tactical doctrine may be summarized in four Chinese characters, which mean uproar in the east, strike in the west. Here we find expressed the all-important principles of distraction on the one hand and concentration on the other, to fix the enemy's attention and to strike where and when he least anticipates the blow. Guerrillas are masters of the arts of simulation and dissimulation. They create pretenses and simultaneously disguise or conceal their true semblance. Their tactical concepts, dynamic and flexible, are not cut to any particular pattern. But Mao's first law of war, 
to preserve oneself and destroy the enemy is always governing. Yeah, it's just amazing the amount of similarities. And I guess at some point in my life, I'm going to stop being amazed that <laughs> on the fact that the basic principles of war and the basic principles of life, mm-hmm. they've been around for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, we just have to relearn them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wrote the dichotomy of leadership or fought the dichotomy of leadership. I didn't think about yin and yang. I should have. If I paid more attention. Yeah. Well, in a way, you did think of yin and yang. You just didn't call it yin and yang. But I'm saying that didn't spark my thoughts. It's a lesson that I learned. Mm-hmm. It wasn't right, right. taught to me. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Which is sad. I could have, yeah, like you've been saying, if I had read more and fought more, maybe mm-hmm. I'd have figured it out earlier. Going on back to the book. At the present time, much attention is being devoted to the development of gadgetry. So he goes, and this again, this is, this is still uh, General Griffith that's talking. And he's, he's saying something that we hear all the time when I was in the military all the time. You hear that, you know, we're going to get this new technology and that's going to change everything. And, they're gonna be able, and, tech, and, and technology is great, but it's not the key component of war. Mm-hmm. And he says this. I do not mean to suggest that proper weapons and equipment will not play an important part in anti-guerrilla operations, for of course they will. Constant efforts should be made to improve communication, food, medical, and surgical packs. Weapons and ammunition must be drastically reduced in weight. There seems to be no technical reason why a sturdy, light, accurate, automatic rifle weighing a maximum of four to five pounds cannot be developed. And the search for new and effective weapons must continue. But we must realize that flamethrower-like guns and bullets are only a very small part of the answer to a challenging and complex problem. The tactics of guerrillas must be used against the guerrillas themselves. Again, this is exactly what Hackworth gave up his career in the army over. This is how he wanted to fight, and people were not listening to him. They must be constantly harried and constantly attacked. Every effort must be made to induce defections and take prisoners. The best source of information of the enemy is men who know the enemy situation. Imaginative, intelligent, and bold leadership. Now again, this is General Griffith talking about what it takes to beat a gorilla. Imaginative, intelligent, and bold leadership is absolutely essential. Commanders and leaders at every echelon must be selected with these specific qualities in mind. You know, people don't think that. This is the Marine Corps. This is a Marine Corps general. His number one characteristic is imagination. That's his number one characteristic. Officers and NCOs who are more than competent under normal conditions will frequently be hopelessly ineffective when confronted with the dynamic and totally different situation characteristics of guerrilla warfare. Who would have thought that the Marine Corps general says that the most important, you know, he's not talking about bravery. He's not talking about anything physical. He's talking about imagination and intelligence and leadership. 
That's what wins. Okay, now we're going to get to the actual words from Mao Zedong and his, again, his section in this book is called very simply Guerrilla Warfare. And let's hear what he has to say about leadership. All guerrilla units must have political and military leadership. This is true regardless of the source or size of such units. Such units may originate locally in the masses of the people. They may be formed from a mixture of regular troops with, the, with groups of people. Or they may consist of regularly, regular army units intact. And mere quantity does not affect this matter. Such units may consist of a squad of a few men, a battalion of several hundred men, or a regiment of several thousand men. All these must have leaders who are unyielding in their policies, resolute, loyal, sincere, and robust. These men must be well-educated in revolutionary technique, self-confident, able to establish severe discipline, and able to cope with counter-propaganda. In short, these leaders must be models for the people. As the war progresses, such leaders will gradually overcome the lack of discipline, which at first prevails. They will establish discipline in their forces, strengthening them and increasing their combat efficiency. Thus, eventual victory will be attained. Unorganized guerrilla warfare cannot contribute to victory. So clearly, once again, leadership is the key component. And he goes into a little bit more of that. But first, Mao is talking about this. What is the basic guerrilla strategy? Guerrilla strategy must be based primarily on alertness, mobility, and attack. It must be adjusted to the enemy situation, the terrain, the existing lines of communications, the relative strengths, the weather, and the situation of the people. You've got to have total adaptability, right? Total adaptability. In guerrilla warfare, select the tactic of seeming to come from the east and attacking from the west. Avoid the solid. Attack the hollow. Attack. Withdraw. Deliver a lightning blow. Seek a lightning decision. When guerrillas engage a stronger enemy, they withdraw when he advances, harass him when he stops, strike him when he's weary, pursue him when he withdraws. In guerrilla strategy, the enemy's rear, flanks, and other vulnerable spots are his vital points, and there he must be harassed, attacked, dispersed, exhausted, and annihilated. Only in this way can guerrillas carry out their mission of independent guerrilla action and coordination with the effort of the regular armies. But in spite of the most complete preparation, there can be no victory if mistakes are made in the matter of command. Very obvious now, we're seeing what guerrilla warfare is. If you're not familiar with it, it's very obvious what it is. And it's very similar to jujitsu. You're setting people up. You're not going against their strengths. You're, you're letting people move, and it's what we talk about all in here uh, when we talk about dealing with other human beings. Mm-hmm. 
Don't go head to head with them on that point that they're dug in on. You're not going to, all you're going to do is create adversity. You're going to get a fight. That's what you're going to get. And you don't want to fight. The other thing that's interesting about this is I start to see slivers into the psychology of Mao where he says here, there can be no victory if mistakes are made in the matter of command. You can see where that starts to show a micromanager. And really, if you look at a communist government, that's just a giant micromanagement of trying to control everything that you can. So you start seeing shades of that, that psychology of the micromanager. Continuing back to the book, the strategy of guerrilla warfare is manifestly unlike that employed in orthodox operations. As the basic tactic of the former is constant activity and movement. There is, in guerrilla warfare, no such thing as a decisive battle. There's nothing comparable to the fixed passive defense that characterizes orthodox war. In guerrilla warfare, transformation of a moving situation into a positional defensive situation never arises. I'm going to read that again. In guerrilla warfare, the transformation of a moving situation into positional defensive situation never arises. So if you're on the move and you're attacking the enemy and all of a sudden they start getting the upper hand, you don't dig in, you disappear. You go away. Now we start talking again. Now this is, I started saying that I start seeing the slivers of psychology of Mao that might turn him into a micromanager, but the guy had to run this war and he knew there was only one way to do it and that's using the basic principles of combat leadership mm. and here he talks about it there are are differences also in the matter of leadership and command in guerrilla warfare small units acting independently play the principal role and there must be no excessive interference with their activities so here's Mao <laughs> the guy that tries to control, I mean, that led communism, which tries to control everything for the state. And he's saying that there must be no excessive interference with their activities. Individual freedom. Who would have thought that Mao is a proponent of individual freedom? In orthodox warfare, particularly in a moving situation, a certain degree of initiative is accorded to subordinates. But in principle, Command is centralized. So in, you know, he's talking about conventional war and he's talking about how command is centralized. This is done because small units and all supporting arms in all district must coordinate to the highest degree. In the, which is actually not true. It's possible to, and, and there's no doubt that decentralized command, even in a big conventional war is infinitely better than centralized command. In the case of guerrilla warfare, this is not only undesirable, but impossible. Only adjacent guerrilla units can coordinate their activities to any degree. So we can only coordinate if I'm right next to you. Mm. Strategically, their activities can be roughly correlated with those of the regular forces, and tactically, they must cooperate with adjacent units of the regular army. But there are no strictures on the extent of guerrilla activity, nor is it primarily characterized by the quality of cooperation of many units. It's what you do on your own. It's what, you, it's what each individual leader does with his little team. Mm. That's decentralized command. 
And by the way, that's free market. You know, that's capitalism. Mm. And it's it's unfortunate that Mao knew this for guerrilla warfare, but he couldn't make the connection. Mm. Or like I said, maybe he did, but he just grew corrupt with power. When we discuss when we discuss the terms front and rear, it must be remembered that while guerrillas do have bases, their primary field of activity is in the enemy's rear areas. They themselves have no rear. That's the equivalent of in jiu-jitsu, you don't want to give up your back. Mm-hmm. Well, in the military, you don't want somebody to be behind you. Where do these gorillas come from? Here's Mao. There are those who say, I am a farmer or I am a student. I can discuss literature, but not military arts. This is incorrect. There is no profound difference between the farmer and the soldier. You must have courage. You simply leave your farms and become soldiers. That you are farmers is of no difference. And if you have an education, that is so much the better. When you take arms in your hand, you become soldiers. When you are organized, you become military units. Guerrilla hostilities are the university of war. And after you have fought several times valiantly and aggressively, you may become a leader of troops. Just got to get out there on the battlefield and you'll learn. I found this interesting. In spite of inescapable differences in the fundamental types of guerrilla bands, it is possible to unite them to form a vast sea of guerrillas. The ancients said, Tai Shan is a great mountain because it does not scorn the merest handful of dirt. The rivers and seas are deep because they absorb the waters of small streams. Attention paid to the enlistment and organization of guerrillas of every type and form, every source will increase the potentialities of guerrillas in action. So they're going to take everybody. And it's important to take everybody. Everybody that shows up is getting in the game. Again, this is, this is a point that is so bizarre to hear from Mao. Here he goes. The people must be inspired to cooperate voluntarily. We must not force them. For if we do, it will be ineffectual. This is extremely important. Mao, I wish you would have read your own book. I wish you would have read your own book. The people must be inspired to cooperate voluntarily. We must not force them. For if we do, it will be ineffectual. This is something that I talk about all the time. Just giving people orders does not work. Mm -hmm. You need to lead them. You need to inspire them. You need to get them to do things because they want to do them. Mm -hmm. Even Mao knew that. Unfortunately, he didn't apply it to his nation.
getting into the officers a little bit, the leadership. Since each guerrilla group fights in a protracted war, its officers must be brave and positive men whose entire loyalty is dedicated to the cause of emancipation of the people. An officer should have the following qualities. Great powers of endurance that in spite of any hardship, he sets an example to his men and is a model for them. He must be able to mix easily with the people. His spirit and that of the men must be one in strengthening the policy of resistance to the Japanese. If he wishes to gain victories, he must study tactics. A guerrilla group with officers of this caliber would be unbeatable. Again, a massive focus on the leadership. Setting an example, leading from the front, and also being able to communicate with people. Being able to, to get down there with the troops and have them relate to you. Mao knew this was important. And a little bit about the troopers here. A soldier who habitually breaks regulations must be dismissed from the army. Vagabonds and vicious people must not be accepted for service. The opium habit must be forbidden, and a soldier who cannot break himself of the habit should be dismissed. Victory in guerrilla war is conditioned upon keeping the membership pure and clean. You got to have good troopers. The idea must be an ever-present conviction. And if it is forgotten, we may succumb to the temptations of the enemy or be overcome with discouragements. And here we talk about this is commander's intent. This is understand why you're doing what you're doing. This is task and purpose. This is a whole bunch of things wrapped up. And this is how Mao says it. You know, I say people got to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And Mao knew the same thing. Here's what he said. In a war of long duration, those whose conviction that the people must be emancipated is not deep are likely to become shaken in their faith and or actually revolt without the general education that enables everyone to understand our goal. If anyone's sleeping right now, wake up and listen to this. Without the general education that enables everyone to understand our goal, the soldiers fight without conviction and lose their determination. Your people, if you're in a leadership position, have got to understand why they're doing what they're doing. They have to. Or they fight without conviction and lose their determination. Again, this is, this is just, it's unbelievable that Mao had this vision and didn't apply it to everything. Listen to what he says about discipline. A revolutionary army must have discipline that is established on a limited democratic basis. In all armies, obedience of the subordinates to their superiors must be exacted. This is true in the case of guerrilla discipline, but the basis for guerrilla discipline must be the individual conscience. With guerrillas, a discipline of compulsion is ineffective. 
a discipline of compulsion is ineffective. So if I'm yelling at you and I'm making you do stuff, if I just force you to do things, I force discipline on you, that is ineffective. Thank you, Mal. Imposed discipline. Versus self-discipline. Versus self-discipline. Yes. This is a familiar term, right? In any revolutionary army, there is unity of purpose as far as both officers and men are concerned. And therefore, within such an army, discipline is self-imposed. Although discipline in guerrilla ranks is not as severe as in the ranks of orthodox forces, the necessity for discipline exists. This must be self-imposed. Because only when it is, is the soldier able to understand completely why he fights and why he must obey. This type of discipline becomes a tower of strength within the army. And it is the only type that can truly harmonize the relationship that exists between officers and soldiers. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is, this is completely true. And it's true across the board in any organization. That what, when you get this, when everyone understands why they're doing it, that becomes the strength. And people discipline themselves because they understand why. <laughs> and he says that that type of discipline, I have to read this again, this type of discipline becomes a tower of strength within the army and it is the only type that can truly harmonize the relationship that exists between officers and soldiers. And he goes on to say this, in any system where discipline is externally imposed, the relationship that exists between officer and man is characterized by indifference of the one to the other. The idea that officers can physically beat or severely tongue lash their men is a futile one and is not in accord with the conception of self-imposed discipline. Discipline of the futile type will destroy internal unity and fighting strength. A discipline self-imposed is the primary characteristic of a democratic system in the army. Unbelievable that he wrote these words and ran his nation the way he did. It's unbelievable. As a matter of fact, I hope some revolutionaries over there are listening to me and saying, you know what? I think we missed the mark a little bit. Mao didn't mean that. Mao didn't want us to beat and torture people to get them in line. I could go back against them with Mao's own words. Let's go toe to toe. Get some freedom. Further, in such an army, the mode of living the the mode of living of the officers and soldiers must not differ too much, and this is particularly true in the case of guerrilla troops. Officers should live under the same conditions as their men. For that is the only way in which they can gain from their men the admiration and confidence so vital in war. The same thing we heard from everyone. We heard that from Patton. So Patton and Mao were on the same page. It is incorrect to hold to a theory of equality in all things, but there must be equality of existence in accepting the hardships and dangers of war. Thus, we may attain to the unification of the officer and soldier groups, a unity both horizontal within the group itself and vertical. 
that is from the lower to the higher echelons. It is only when such unity is present that units can be said to be powerful combat factors. Back to some, back to some tactical notes. Speed is essential. The movements of guerrilla troops must be secret and of supernatural rapidity. The enemy must be taken unaware and the action entered speedily. There can be no procrastination in the execution of plans. You got to get it done here and now. The enemy is much stronger than we are. And it is true that we can hinder, distract, disperse, and destroy him only if we disperse our own forces. Although guerrilla warfare is the warfare of such dispersed units, it is sometimes desirable to concentrate in order to destroy an enemy. Thus, the principle of concentration of force against a relatively weaker enemy is applicable to guerrilla warfare. A little bit of prioritize and execute. And this right here is where we're going to close it out. Again, going back to leadership. No military leader is endowed by heaven with an ability to seize the initiative. It is the intelligent leader who does so after a careful study and estimate of the situation and arrangement of the military and political factors involved. When a guerrilla unit, through either a poor estimate on the part of its leader or pressure from the enemy, is forced into a passive position, its first duty is to extricate itself. No method can be prescribed for this, as the method to be employed will, in every case, depend on the situation. One can, if necessary, run away. But there are times when the situation seems hopeless and in reality is not so at all. It is at such times when the good leader recognizes and seizes the moment when he can attain and regain the lost initiative. Let us revert to alertness. To conduct one's troops with alertness is essential of guerrilla command. Leaders must realize that to operate alertly is the most important factor in gaining the initiative and vital in its effect on the relative situation that exists between our forces and those of the enemy. Guerrilla commanders must adjust their operations to enemy situation, to the terrain, and to prevailing local conditions. Leader, leaders must be alert to sense changes in those factors and make necessary modifications in troop dispositions to accord with them. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about you've got to have the ability to detach. He's calling it be alert. The leader must be like a fisherman who, with his nets, is able to both cast them and pull to pull and to pull them out in awareness of the depth of the water, the strength of the current, or the presence of any obstructions that may foul them. As the fisherman controls his nets through the lead ropes, so the guerrilla leader maintains contact with and control over his units. As the fisherman must change position, so must the guerrilla commander. Dispersion, concentration, constant change of position. It is in these ways that guerrillas employ their strength. And so you'll notice, again, what he's talking about is that the leader has to be able to detach and be alert of these things that are happening. And also you'll notice that throughout this, he puts total responsibility on the leader. If the leader does well, the troops will do well. If the leader fails, they all fail. 
talking about extreme ownership, this communist. So I thought that's a great eye into into another leader that, you know, he led troops in combat. And like I said, throughout that, that section, he just didn't realize that that is not just leadership for a guerrilla unit. He thought that it was another way in different situations, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you know, and I, I think it's also good to, for me, go diving into this this other book here. You don't know where you're going to gain knowledge from mm-hmm. or confirm knowledge. Yeah. Is it going to be from you know one of the most murderous communist dictators of all time? Yes, I'm getting some knowledge from him. I'm confirming knowledge. Yep. And that's pretty cool. Um. And it also proves once again. Once again, that leading people is leading people. Whether you're doing it in combat, whether you're doing it in business, whether you're doing it in a team, leadership, the leadership principles that work with humans work with all humans in all situations. Are there nuances? Yes. Do you have to make adjustments? Yes. That's actually what we just talked about. That's part of it is being alert enough or detached enough that you can sense those things and you can make those adjustments on the fly. But the basic principles, they don't change and they haven't changed for thousands of years. So, yeah, let's get to some Internet questions. Sure. How's that? Sounds good to me. Um. But before that, internet-related items, other than the questions, are the fact that we're sponsored by Onnit.com. Boom. And um, that's where we get our supplements, including, but not limited to, Alpha Brain, which helps you think better and uh, your memory and stuff. It's good. And I'll tell you, they just released something. They release something called MCT oil, yes. and if you're if you're a type of person that's firing up the uh, ketogenic diet and you're going low carb like I do, then uh, you can try this stuff out. I've been putting it in directly into heavy whipping cream. I put a little MCT coconut MCT oil or strawberry in the MCT, cream right in there. Stir mm. it. That's your dessert. You got yourself a little treat. <laughs> got yourself a little treat. So good to go. Zero carbs. All fat. Just flowing through my system loving it on it inducing MCT large oil. smiles on Jocko's face yes yes give that stuff a shout on get it. yourself some curl oil on top of it mm. yeah keep your joints intact even if you're young I think you should have oh, yeah. krill oil you know? if you're training yeah yeah if you're listening to this podcast and you're getting after it you yeah. probably need some krill oil yeah. that's the deal um, yeah on it.com slash Jocko get 10% off because retail, full, paying 100%, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that. But 10% off, let's face it. That's 10% off. Um, yeah, on it.com slash Jocko. Also, if you're in the mood to support this podcast for any reason, um, you can do a few things. And they're really easy. So one of them is before you shop on Amazon, no matter what you're buying, including but not limited to any of the books that Jocko Reviews or Extreme Ownership, the book Jocko wrote, go to JockoPodcast.com first 
click on the Amazon link. And then it kind of, you know, gives us a little, like a small referral fee. That's what it's called, a referral fee. Nice. Easy way to support. Or if you like the shirts that um, that we make, you want to wear one or two, buy one of those. Boom. There you go. If you want to donate, you can do that too. Um, but why not get a shirt, right? Or a bumper sticker. Yeah, if you're going to give up 30 bucks, <laughs> might as well get a t-shirt. Yeah, that's true. Awesome. Let's, let's answer some questions from the people. Cool. All right. First question. Jocko and Echo. Jiu-Jitsu is a long, repetitive grind. That said, there are occasional highlights. Aha moments. Submissions you're proud of. Your personal legends, quote-unquote. Or maybe key embarrassments. What are some of those for each of you? So what is an aha moment that's when you learn something really important, in my opinion. Right. Now, the you. first part of this where it says BJJ is a long, repetitive grind, no, I don't think so. Agree. Disagree. Yeah, I, yeah, I, disagree. I disagree with that, yes. Uh, to me, BJJ is a fun, exciting road of enlightenment. Right. Ups <laughs> and downs, is. for sure. Oh, yeah. There's some, oh, there's some rough days on the mats. Yeah. <laughs> there's some rough days grinded, on the mats. You'll get grinded, for sure. No doubt about that. Uh, a couple for me. Well, one of them for sure. I've told the story before about how I started training jiu-jitsu. Uh, SEAL Team Master Chief, guy named Steve Bailey, awesome guy, was a fighter, fought Muay Thai, and he was training with the Gracies in the early 90s, late 80s. He was training up in the garage in Torrance, right, right. and so he knew jiu-jitsu. And he asked a bunch of us if we want to train. A couple of us said yes. He choked us out. He arm-locked us. I was amazed. And I thought that that was all of jiu-jitsu. And he was like literally a white belt. But 1990 or whatever, pre-UFC, it was a big deal. Uh, so anyways, to, to tell this story quickly, one of the guys that was with me in that initial training was a guy named Jeff Higgs. Jeffrey Higgs was a SEAL buddy of mine. I went through SEAL training with him. Awesome guy. And we both were kind of training together at that time. We trained for like four or five months, tops. And then we weren't in the same platoon. We came back, and Higgs actually started training with Fabio Santos mm. all the time. And he got out of the Navy just to train jiu-jitsu. Okay. And I was still in the SEAL teams going on deployment, blah, blah, blah. So one day he comes over to my house. He had just gotten his purple belt, and I was a white belt. And he goes, hey, you want to train? And I said, yeah, because, I mean, I thought, you know, I know the stuff that he knows because I learned it three years ago or four years ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, let's do it. So we went across the street into the grass and just he just choked me. I mean, just destroyed me, right? Brand new purple belt showing off his skills on <laughs> right. my neck. Eager to do it. Eager too. to show yeah, off hungry. the skills. And he's actually, he's an awesome guy, super humble. Yes. And he was actually, the you know, he was doing me a huge favor. Yeah. You know, showing me that, hey, you're, you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, that was an aha moment. I don't know anything. So that was a, uh, that was a, a good aha moment for me. Yeah. Mine was re- way more, uh, it was a lot shorter. So me and, um, me and Cake Nuts, mm-hmm. Navy SEAL, one of my best friends, we went, um, down to remember when Dean had that spot that yeah it was like a half a spot yep yep <clears throat> so that's where I first this was like maybe a month in 
and I knew I went in knowing what mount and guard, side mount, rear naked choke. I knew that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to really function in any of those positions, but I knew what they were, and I knew how to be in them and stuff. So that was it. I thought I was a pretty solid athlete. I was like 225, mm-hmm. solid. Was this your first time training with Dean? Yeah, this was my oh. first time actually rolling with Dean. Oh, okay. But he had he was the he was a teacher, you know, yeah, it was yeah. like a small group of and um so I was like, Oh shoot, I'm you know, Dean that was when in his height when he mm-hmm. he was coming off his ADCC win, he had a super fight that year against um John Josh. John Jack. Yeah. So um he was the man, you know. Yep. So I was like, Oh, I'm gonna roll with Dean but um so I maybe outweighed him by, you know, I don't know, five five pounds mm-hmm. whatever but i was like hey what if i what if i get dean that'll be so awkward you know like i got him and you know and because you know maybe yeah. i'll spaz and catch a submission i don't yeah, know yeah. you know yeah. who knows it's a, it's it's possible right no, so so it was me and cake nuts and, and dean was like yeah i'll roll with you guys you know welcome to the, the academy or whatever um so i'm like all right so i roll in right when he you know how you kind of we didn't start standing up. He kind of sat down in yeah. front of me, and you yeah. just start to slowly roll. He just he grabbed me, yeah. and now it's called when you lock up with someone, right? Right? You understand that that's what it's called. But when we locked up, when mm-hmm. he grabbed me, that's the moment I you realized, oh yeah, that that probability of me catching him is literally at this point zero. Yeah, literally, just right when he grabbed me, mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, just the way he was and. It just you didn't feel like you could just do anything, and then of course he beat me up. And um, when it's funny when Cake Nuts rolled with him, remember that thing? And he did it in ADCC, I think, against Salo. When you get into a certain position, he gets kind of under you, and then he picks you up and oh, stands yeah. up and walks around mm-hmm, with you. Mm-hmm. So he did that to Cake Nuts, and then when I rolled with him again, he did that to me. <laughs> but with me, he grabbed me and he went, bam, bam, and bashed me against the wall. Not hard, just yeah, playful, just fun. Just to show me again that, you know, the chance of me actually doing anything or having any control over this whole experience was was zero. Um, so that's that's that aha moment that I was like, okay, this jujitsu thing is way more. Because I was bigger than him. I knew I could lift more weights than him. I know that, you know, at this point. But it, it didn't matter at all. Um, so that's, yeah, that's when I realized so, that jujitsu so is a good, lot more powerful. I got a good one. So I was a white belt. A white belt. But I was training this is it so after higgs comes to my house he destroys me i'm like okay i'll be there tomorrow give me the address yeah, yeah. i walk in i'm like hey i want to sign up for unlimited classes there, do you want to try a class no i want to sign up for unlimited classes <laughs> yeah. now at fabio's yep at yeah. fabio's so go in there start training and just i'm taking classes during lunch i'd drive down from the team go take a lunch class i would train with guys in the morning anyone i could get to train with i'll do training and then i'd come at night i'd take the beginner's class and i'd take the advanced class mm-hmm. and then i do open mat and then then fabio would kick, kick dean and i off the mat at nine o'clock and tell us to get lies. And, uh, so when he was, I was training, but I was still a white belt. Right. So this guy shows up and it's another seal and I didn't know him. He was from the East coast and I didn't know him and he was strong and he was a blue belt. Right. Mm -hmm. So I go, okay, this guy's a blue belt. He's going to be good. Well, we had some wars, right? So I'm a white belt. He's a blue belt, but I'm training out in San Diego, which has really good jujitsu. Obviously I'm training with Dean, learning from fabio we're training all the time so i'm pretty good for a white belt right right so him and i are having a war and he's only in town for about a week or maybe a week and a half two weeks at the most uh, white belt war white belt warriors so we we're going stalemate every day stalemate 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 the last day the last day he gets a 
he gets mounted on me. And he was a wrestler in college, a college wrestler and okay. a very competitive guy and a great guy, by the way. The last day, he like knows he wants it. He gets mounted on me. He digs in a, a, a choke, a gi choke, like an X choke, mm-hmm. and just puts the pressure and uh, smashing my face, doesn't care, and gets into my neck. I tap. <laughs> and that's that. So so this guy, now we, you know, he goes back to the East Coast. We continue with our careers. I'm now training even more. You know, I'm just training and training and training and training. And I'm training with Dean. I, went, I ended up going to college. When I went to college, I trained even more. Mm. And then finally, so I would see him occasionally, you know, and I'd say, oh, you're still training? He goes, yeah, you know, I'm still training, still training. And he, he actually completed, competed in Worlds and did well in Worlds as a purple belt. I think he actually won Worlds as a purple belt. Mm-hmm. And eventually got his brown belt. And so finally, like 10 years later, so now, I mean, I'm literally Dean's main training partner for something like 12 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And like you said, this is when Dean's just dominating. And so we, we, I, I'm going to a seal conference Mm -hmm. on this remote location. And I look at the roster of who's going to be there and he's going to be there. (laughs) And I went to home Depot and I bought like a 30 by 30 canvas, um, a canvas, you know, tarp to put on the ground so I could train with him. Mm-hmm. And we, and I, I sent him an email. I was like, Hey, I see that you come to the conference. Let's train. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. I'm like, I do too. Yeah. And so we get out there, we fly to this place, we meet up and I say, Hey, let's train. And we get on the mat and I'm just, you know, like, a thousand times better than I was. And I'm again, I'm at this point, I've been training with Dean. I'd gone through a whole competition phase. So anyways, and he's been working and he's been deploying and he's been being a seal. So, I mean, I just trained more and, and I was just all over him. And so I submitted him a bunch of times and then, and then, you know, he kind of said like, can you just show me some stuff? Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, man, sorry. <laughs> For you, that was the victory. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, but it was funny. And then I would always joke with him about it. And I kind of tell that story. He was like, almost, I I put the spin on it as if I was thinking about him the whole time. But it's not true. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. just yeah, but, uh, and then one time years later, I saw him and, and we were in, uh, we were in DC. We were actually at the Pentagon. Hadn't seen him for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I see him and I'm in my, my khaki uniform, you know, with short sleeves. And he's like, Oh, you, you looking skinny, you losing weight. And I looked back and I said, I'm just trying to get down to your weight class to make it more even <laughs> next time. <laughs> he just laughed, but a great guy, yeah. great guy, great leader, a great guy. That's funny that that happens a lot of the time where you'll develop just through, whether it be this kind of thing where you trained and then they leave and they come back kind of thing, or someone who's hangs around, you develop that little sense of competition. It usually happens with a guy who's close to you. Mm. He kind of starts with you or maybe kind of you meet him and you're just, you guys start off the, the relationship for lack of a better term. You start off at, a similar level, mm-hmm. you know, and then you kind of develop this little competition. Like that's yeah. the guy, you know? Yeah. And you always, when you get off the bus, when you get off the training bus, it's, you're going to lose time, you know, and people yeah. are going to get better. If you, that's why you can't get off the bus. Yeah. You got to stay on the bus at all costs. You got to stay on the training bus. Yeah. If you get off the bus completely, people are going to, the yeah. bus is going away. Right. 
Yeah, and, and if they're on the, if your little training buddy's oh, on that bus, oh yeah, yeah, very very hard to catch. You're up done. That one. But there's been a series of uh, periods over time. You know, one of them that's that always Dean and I talk about a lot is he was killing me for like three months with the front head and arm, just just hammering me with it and just couldn't get out of it, smashing me. And then one day he goes, oh, if you want to get out of it, just do put your hand on the hip and switch your head to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, bro. <laughs> I, so I tried. I'm like, seriously? Yeah. You didn't? It's been three months and you didn't show me that? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's your deal? No. You know? Yeah. And uh, But it also showed me that that sometimes what I remember from that is that sometimes these simple moves are so effective and they're so obvious and all you need is just to get that little bit of knowledge yep. to make you be able to escape this position that I was held in for three months. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't a even call them obvious. Knowledge. But just small, seemingly obvious, like 20, hindsight, yes. 2020. Hindsight, 2020, yeah. they seem obvious. Yes, you're right. But it, it's, it's the, that's the beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu. And you yeah. never know. It's another thing. That's why you don't get off the bus because you never know what day you're going to learn that thing. Yep. What minute, what training partner is going to say, hey, if you moved your hips right here, you'd, you'd have tapped me. Yep. And you yeah. say, oh, wow. Yeah, actually, Dean taught me something in that exact same scenario. He didn't he didn't hammer me with it and then teach it to me. He was He just was... He noticed that I had an opportunity to do it. It was just a small thing. It's 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 hard to explain without you know doing it. But he did that. But it was just a matter of instead of moving your hips the natural way that you always want to do, you just twist them the other way, and it breaks a certain grip yep. that he can control you with. But yeah, so it's so true. What about um, like um, you know some embarrassments? You I, I don't I don't get embarrassed on the mat. I mean, you get tapped out, it happens. Right, yeah. You know, I'm not embarrassed by it. Yep. Um even if you get caught, I mean, it just doesn't matter. Why well, how would you be embarrassed? Yeah. I think yeah, and embarrassed I think is a strong term cuz that's true. I mean, I don't think I've ever been like embarrassed like ah, oh, but I actually is I think pretty much only with you where <laughs> And it's not embarrassing. It's just like when I think back on it, I'm like, man, I should have been maybe mentally tougher. Remember when I used to like give into like a claustrophobia oh, thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, But yeah. you were real good at it because I'd only catch it with you. Yeah, yeah. No, once I realized that weakness, I acted like Chairman Mao and just attacked the weakness <laughs> and would just smother yeah. your, your claustrophobia. Uh, yeah. And there was a few times where I was like, I admitted to myself that I was like, I, I didn't want to deal with that at that time. And I was like mad at myself, but I was never really you embarrassed. Know what? Uh, next time like, we roll, I'm going to explore your go improvement. Bro, yeah, bro, you tested it the other day because you have a thing and whatever, do do you, but you wear uh, cotton shirts a lot mm-hmm. of the time. when you. So after rolling for a while, that cotton shirt is like, a, like being waterboarded yeah. in certain positions. Yeah. And you were waterboarding me the other day. Yeah. And but man, no, hey, no, no factor, no vote. Ooh, I wasn't giving like into that, that one. I like that, Jackal Podcast is helping out. Echo, this jujitsu game. Legit. All right, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, it's all in. But I agree with you. It's not a grind. It's yeah, not, I don't no, think it's a daily grind. grind. And you know, looking back, the question also says, "What submissions are you proud of?" Yeah. Like again, that's sort of like the embarrassment thing, right? You, know, you do a submission, hey, your jujitsu worked. Yeah. And even when I talk to people, like they say, oh, "I'm going to catch you one day." 
Right. And I go, good, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu works. If you use it yeah. on me, it's going to work. And I would, I will admit that that right there, I'm going to catch you one day. That's, that's there, but not to any like legitimate or significant degree. Cause I'll tell you, I have that in my head about you. I'll catch you one day. And I know you have it in your mind that no, you won't. And even if you were to tell me, no, I don't have that in my head straight. I won't. Well, believe no, you. I, I, I accept it. You know, because here's the deal. If I just didn't want, if I didn't want you to ever catch me, what would I do? Wouldn't roll with you. Right. Yeah. But I don't care. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to roll with you all the time. Yeah. Whoever steps on the mat. Yeah. Because what's exactly the worst case scenario? Get tapped out. It means I got a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of presents those opportunities to be like, okay, my game's not all perfect. Because if you yeah. don't get tapped, you don't realize how many holes you have, you know, when you're, when you're getting everybody all the sometimes time. Sometimes you do make like a little mistake. And this is a good life lesson too. Sometimes you make a little mistake with somebody and you're lax with somebody and they get and they might catch you when when normally if you went a hundred times more and you didn't relax at that moment. But you can't live in that world because you got to relax when you train. Otherwise, you won't explore new positions and get put in compromised positions and all that. So, yeah. And again, it's not to any real significant degree. It's more just like a fun kind of competition thing that you have with certain people and you're like yeah i'm gonna tap that guy one day you know or you'll you don't talk trash to him or whatever that's out unfortunately i'm the victim of that attitude towards me yeah well you have i to mean be. i was you're watching the, two, of the our, guy the top. two of our good guys roll today they're rolling with each other they're laughing they're having, having fun. Fun. I, they're literally <laughs> laughing they're yeah, literally yeah. like telling jokes to each other yep. when it's my turn to go with them it's yep. murder nope. time yep. they're yep. bringing it they're smashing yep. they're bringing it and it was it was it was Bones, Bones Jones, Justin Jones, oh, yeah, yes. who's an animal and strong and good, and it was Taylor. Taylor and Taylor's just a complete beast. Yeah. But those guys are rolling with each other. It's all giggles right. and laughing, and they come with me, and they're bringing the heat. Because yep. you know what they're thinking? Exactly what you just said. Maybe they can get that tap. Yeah. Get it today. Yep. It will be a grind, though, if you have this specific mindset, which which can be common. Um and sometimes your mind can go in and out of it where if you if your goals are predicated on like something outside of just learning jujitsu, like sometimes people would be focused on the belt, you oh, know, like, yeah. oh, I want to get my purple belt or whatever. And yeah. when am I going to get that purple belt? And then people tell you the answer really is if you want to answer that question, put in the time, put in the work, learn all this stuff. And one day it will come to you. Yeah. So you know, it's, if it's, that's it's your the, goal. It's the same thing when I talk about people in their, in their career. You know, they say, I want to get promoted. I want to get, if you're in yeah. your career to get promoted, it's going to be a grind. Yeah. If you're in, if you're in, in your career, you're trying to do a good job. Like when I was in the military, I didn't care about promotion. I was just yeah. trying to do a good job. And when yeah. you do a good job, you'll get noticed at some point yeah. and you'll get your promotion. Yeah. But if, if all you're trying to do is get promoted and scheme and maneuver and all that stuff, it's right. not going to be fun. Yeah. And it's what, yeah. And it's whack. And you see people, everyone, you can, when someone's doing that, you can tell. Because they'll be, oh, yeah. when the teacher's around, they won't roll with good guys and get good work. They'll just, you know, they'll do stuff or oh, they'll avoid they rolling with oh, people because yeah. they want to look good and demonstrate to the teacher, hey, look, I'm rolling like a purple belt. Give it to me. You know, so they have that kind of approach to it and it gets in your way. And yeah, it will be a grind because you're yeah. going to be like, man, how many hours do I got to put into this thing? Because you're focused on when am I going to get the belt? And you can fall in and out of that sometimes too, because it kind of depends on your environment. If everyone's thinking like that, or if they're even vocal about it, you know, you can't help but kind of maybe feel that and be like, maybe that's kind of the thing, you know? Yeah, don't worry about your belt. Yeah. Man, I didn't even know 
that there because when I started I was go- going with Dean so it was all no gi mm-hmm. so I didn't really know really about belts <laughs> and Jimmy remember Jimmy yeah he was like hey come to class tomorrow uh, we have promotions so be sure to come and I was like oh that's cool I thought he meant promotions like some brands were coming in to promote their oh. products and stuff so it'll be a fun time so I was like oh yeah that's cool he's like yeah so come like that and I'm like yeah all right I was so like you got I the might belch. I said well I said I don't I can't really make it because usually I, I work at night or whatever and he's like no no you want to come and I was like all right I said I'll try and sounds like fun and he's like no no you're getting promoted and I was like what does that mean and I didn't say what does that mean but I was like I'm being he's like yeah you're getting your blue belt and I was like oh yeah I guess right you get belts right but I was yeah. just training and competing and I think that that I learned like a, I mean, I think as a white belt, if you're into it, you learn the most oh, at sure. that time because you're going from zero up to yeah. like, you know, the learning curves. Yeah, it's more steep for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good attitude to, to maintain at yeah. all costs. Like maintain that attitude. I just want to learn the next thing to learn. If the it's other, timing, the I'm other, learn that. the other thing that's a bummer on that same topic is when people get the verbal belt. Then you never see him again. Yeah. Or they get their brown belt and you never see him again. Or they get yeah. their black belt and you never see him again. You know. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. You're just starting out when you get your purple belt. Yeah. That's when you're starting to get good. That's when you're starting to become a real jujitsu player. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's when you when you have a lot. I don't want to say most or all or nothing, but you have a lot of legit set weapons. Yeah. Now for you just sure. got to know how to use them. For you know, sure. You got to start learning how to use them. The difference That's between true. a purple belt and a blue belt. I mean, a purple belt. You know, I'll roll with purple belts in our gym and they're competitive. You yeah. know. Most of the blue belts, unless they're studs, are you know you're not going to be really threatened with anything, even positionally. Right. But the purple belt's a whole different story. You know, yeah. you make a mistake with the purple yeah. belt, they're, they're right you're there, right there, going down. Yep, yep, absolutely true. And yeah, and that's that's a weird one because, in my experience anyway, um, I've seen they're like polar opposites as far as that kind of personality. The guy who will get a belt and disappear, or the guy who will get a belt and the day he gets his belt, he's like. Like he's been training for six months when you weren't looking or something, just in that one day. Because I think it's a mental thing. Oh, they rise to the occasion. Exactly, they know right. They got it, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in their mind, they're like... That's another good point. Don't be in a hurry to get your belts anyways, because you, you have so much more... You're free to make mistakes. Yep. You're a blue belt. You're a white belt. Yep. I kept one of my buddies as a white belt for, like, years. <laughs> and I said... And right now, you know what he is? Been training for 10 years? Blue belt. <laughs> Because he's overseas, he's been traveling, all this stuff, and he should be a purple belt at least. Yeah. He's tapping out black belts, so they're going to give it to him where he's training, but yeah, Yeah. it's one of those things. Yeah, the belt thing is, and it's easier said than done, I think, especially if you're in a certain environment or a certain type of person, but um, but if if at all possible, don't think about the belt. No. Don't think about your belt. I think that's the... Think about the knowledge. Yeah. That'll be the one-way ticket into this little realm of thinking jujitsu is a long, repetitive grind. Not guaranteed. I'm not saying that's why, but I'm saying that is a good way to to think like that. Definite factor. Yes. Big time. Big time. Next question. Jocko, from your experience or observation, how does one learn humility? And on top of that, talk about gaining more self-confidence. So this here was actually two questions, mm-hmm. two questions. One of them, how do you learn humi- humility? And the other one is how do you gain more self-confidence? Of course, I paired these together because there's a dichotomy in those two, right? Mm-hmm. 
the, if you have a bunch of self-confidence and you're not being humble, and if you're being too humble, then you don't have self-confidence. So a good analogy of this, of course, what we were just talking about is jujitsu, because when you start jujitsu and we'll, we'll turn this into a metaphor for life, but when you start jujitsu, you very quickly learn number one, that you can get beat, that you're not everything that you thought you were. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the same time, you start to gain confidence. I mean, it's, it, it makes you more confident because you realize that as you have knowledge, it's the things that other people don't know. And so it's the same thing with life because if you're in life and you step out into the arena, right, mm-hmm. you're going to realize that you're not, you don't know everything. That's something you're going to realize. And the more that you realize that you don't know everything, the more it humbles you, but also in a in a reverse way actually makes you more confident because now you're gaining knowledge because you are stepping into the arena. So it's like with jujitsu, when you spar and you roll, you're going to get tapped. Yes, but the more you do it, the more confident you get. And the more you accept the fact that you don't know everything, you don't like the question before, like, what are you embarrassed about? Why would you be embarrassed in the sport? Don't be embarrassed. Go there and get tapped out. Good. You're learning, you know, and, and that's what you have to do in life. If you want to gain humility and you want to gain self-confidence in life, you have to get on the mat, right? You got to step up in lead you got to step up and talk you got to volunteer for the hard job you got to take risks that's how you're going to gain the confidence and the humility because sometimes you're going to get beat sometimes you're going to win but you won't make any of that that progress unless you take the opportunity to step out on the mat step into the arena step into the cage step onto the stage step up onto the leadership pedestal that's how you make it work. Because when you're humble, that's, that's where humility comes from. You realize that you're not perfect and you realize that nobody is. Mm-hmm. So it's like that old thing of walk in and picture everyone with their underwear on or whatever. When you realize that everyone else is human, that increases your confidence. Because mm-hmm. you're not looking at everyone like they're, oh, they're, they're masters. Better. No, they're mm-hmm. not. They're just other people. Mm-hmm. And... So that's what I would do. If you want to gain confidence and you want to gain humility, both of them, get out there, get on the mat, get on the stage or in the game, into the leadership position, whatever the case may be, and live. Mm -hmm. And don't be embarrassed. And don't be abusive when you do do well. You know, that's the thing. Again, that's the thing about jujitsu and it's the thing about life. You realize you're not going to be, there's always going to be someone that's better than you. That's okay. Just be humble. Learn from it. And when you know that there's other people that are going to be better than you, it's okay. You can be confident in what you can do because you know you're going to be better than other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we're. I was talking with Greg and Tim today about um, about humility. So there's like internal hum- humility and external humility. So the external humility isn't really humility. It's the guy who's like super respectful when he talks to people and how he talks, but on the inside, he's like, eh, I'm better than yeah, everyone. That's, that's mm, I know good. everything. And the opposite is 
if someone's the opposite they're on the outside he's like heck yeah like a conor mcgregor like i'm the, you know i'm the greatest i'm gonna beat him my timing is dope and all this stuff and how good i am um but on the inside when it comes down when no one's looking when it's time to train he's learning from everyone some guy a white belt gives him gives him a tip he considers that tip is this gonna help me you know mm-hmm. so he's his humility allows him to learn from everybody right. and you know he ends up being more successful um because of that humility you know and that's like the internal humility that's true statements you know um you know some people they're like hey i'm um i'm not cocky i'm confident mm-hmm. do you think that there's like a difference between cocky there is and absolutely a difference yeah there's absolutely a difference and, and it's a dichotomy because you have to be confident but not cocky right confidence like you know, confidence saying, hey, I know I could I know I could win this match or hey, I know I can make this happen or hey, I know I can lead this mission or whatever. That's mm-hmm. that's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Cocky is, hey, I know I can win this and I don't even need to train. Right. Or hey, I know I can lead this mission and we don't even need to prepare. Yeah. That's cocky and that's wrong. Right. So confident but not cocky. It's a it's a simple dichotomy of leadership which is actually in the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you yes, know, you know, there is a difference. And, or you know how some, t- some people, they won't do it necessarily in, in terms of um, being a leader or anything like that. They'll just do it in, kind of in life. You know, these people, it's like, yeah, because they talk about themselves all the time or something like that, right? So in those cases, I kind of w- differentiated it where a cocky person is going to talk about himself and how good he or she or whatever is unprompted. Confident is they're going to answer honestly about how they feel about their you yeah. know, preparedness or skill or whatever, but it has to be prompted. They're Fair not going to just go out of their way and be like, Hey, I'm the greatest, you know, but if they're, if someone's like, Hey, Oh, you know, honest question, do you think you're the greatest? And they really think they are the greatest in their experience or whatever. They're going to say the honest thing. You know, that's like a confident versus yeah. cocky. I was, my daughter said the other day, I was considering bringing my daughter on the my oldest daughter on the podcast because mm. people ask about parenting a lot i'm not gonna do it i've decided <laughs> okay. but you know i was like well what kind of questions would i ask her and i said well tell you know i was just kind of experimenting and i said tell people something that they wouldn't expect about me or something that you recognize about me and one of the things she said was she heard me talking to someone about jujitsu that didn't know me mm-hmm. and they were like oh oh do you train jujitsu and i said oh yeah i do and they said are you good and I and I said like I'm all right, you know I've I've been training for a while, so I'm all right. And she said I was really like I was surprised at how humble you were. You've been doing jujitsu for 20 years, and right. you just and you know I said you know you don't know somebody. First of all, that person might be better than me. Yeah, that's the reality. Yep. I'm mean, like um yeah I'm really good. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you know what I'm listening to this and I'm trying to cons- trying to think in my experience your reaction to any jujitsu questions in that way where so. I don't think I've ever heard you, and I've known you for 10 years, I think, maybe eight years or so. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard you say, yeah, I tapped that guy out. I don't think I've ever heard you say that. Yeah, maybe it's... if I asked you, no, no, I, I can't even, I can't really like picture you saying that. Yeah, I tapped, right? I tapped him out. Yeah, it's one of those weird things too, because it, it, it in a one way, it means something. In yeah. another way, it doesn't mean anything. It yeah. means I've been training for longer than you. You right. made a mistake, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the point where that's in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You're right. But in this immature way that's <laughs> – and a part of that, if you've been doing jiu-jitsu for even a little while, 
you'll have at least this much of it in you like hey did you tap that guy out kind of thing and i was reading a thing just kind of online a little fun thing where it was like unwritten rules of jujitsu you don't go and talk about how you tap this guy out today you don't do that and that's true yeah but the the reason there's an article like that is because it's a small part of that in all of us that wants to say you know hey you know maybe with your close friends you'd be like hey did you get him you know and you'd be like yeah or you'll come home and tell your wife who doesn't care at all by the way but it's there in you yeah but and with maturity, you're not going to go and say, hell right. yeah, I tapped him yeah, out, tapped you know? Guy. Yeah. But with you, I mean, we're, especially now we're kind of close. I still don't, I've never heard you say, yeah, I got him. I tapped him out. Even, I remember one time, and I'm not going to say who, because he's a well-known guy, and he came and visited, and I rolled with him, and he just beat me. I was back when I was a purple belt. And then you rolled with him. I didn't see the whole roll. I saw you guys rolling, and then I asked you afterwards. I was like, hey, so, you know, like, I, all I said was what happened, because I didn't remember that's how you'd always ask me, <laughs> you know, like, hey, what happened? You know, like, how'd he go kind of thing. Yeah. And then... So I asked you that, and you were like, it sounded, it really felt like you wanted to say it, but it was like almost like you had this rule almost or something. Yeah. You, were, you were like, we were, we were getting after it. <laughs> and you just left it at that. I was like, all right, I respect it, respect huh. it. That's but interesting. But yeah, I, yeah, and I just kind of realized that now. I don't think you've ever said that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably a decent policy to have. Yeah. I had a guy one time that passed my guard. And me? no, it wasn't you. Some, somebody passed my guard and held it for about a second and a half and then stood up and and literally ran around right, right. screaming. That was like, his victory. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, I was kind of like, wow. <laughs> you know, it's strange. That was probably strange to you. But although I would maybe – I'm not saying I would never do that. I might do that as a joke, you know. Yeah. But um, man, I feel where he was coming from. I'm <laughs> be honest with you. It, it, you know, actually, for a while, this held me back because people got so intent on passing my guard mm-hmm. that I had to defend it as if I was defending a tap. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah, and so deep. now, and then finally, like, uh, uh, probably six months ago, maybe a year ago, I just said, you know what? I'm going to start letting people pass my guard just so yeah. I can play different parts of the game. Right. And right. so now I just, you know, I'm not that concerned about it anymore. Mm-hmm. People getting all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Decentralized command. Ever thought of how parents ultimately deploy their children into the world and the, the, the parallels? Yeah, and so it, people have been asking me to talk about parenting mm-hmm. since the podcast started, mm-hmm. and I really have been avoiding it. Again, one of the things I was considering was bringing my daughter on, possibly – and I'm not going to do it. And, you know, my oldest daughter, she's 16. And I was thinking to myself, if I was on a video or a recording when I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. I would not want to hear that. <laughs> I would not want to be that. You know, you just wouldn't want that. So I'm not going to do that to my daughter, even though she's super mature, smart, articulate. It would definitely be interesting, but but I'm not going to subject her to that kind of environment Mm -hmm. and the other the other reason i don't want to talk about parenting very much is because my oldest kid is 16 i have no idea if i've been successful or not i don't i mean doing great in school great that's cool but i need another 10 years before i can pass judgment and actually maybe even more than that because what if they're successful not because okay if they're successful what's success that they got into a good college, that they got a good job, that they have lots of money, that they have kids, spouse, house, cars, whatever. 
what if, but at the same time, what if they have all that, but they're miserable right. because that happens all the time. I meet people like that all the time. Yeah. They got a bunch of money. They're not successful because they're, they're angry. They're upset. They're depressed. Their life sucks. Mm-hmm. So was I a good parent if I drove them into that position? Right. Maybe not. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't like I don't want to talk about something that I'm not feeling super confident about because I can't pass judgment yet. Right. I can tell you my opinion, but even that, I don't want to influence you and I don't have facts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can tell you about leadership because I've been in leadership positions, hard ones, and I can talk with at least some, some level of confidence that what I'm saying is true because I've seen it. Yeah. And I've seen it in the military and I've seen it in the civilian world. And I've seen it on teams. I've seen it in a bunch of different places. So I have a pretty good feeling about it. Mm. Parenting, like it's it's just mm. it's just a little bit different because I don't know because there's definitely a different interaction. Now, and for everyone that's been waiting this entire podcast, <laughs> here it comes. That being said, <laughs> you do absolutely have to use decentralized command with your kids because you're not going to be there for every decision that they make. You're not going to be there every time they get past a drug to snort or every time they've had some alcohol and they need to drive somewhere or every time they stumble into a bad situation or they see someone participating in something that's wrong or they see someone perpetrating a crime and maybe they could do something to stop. You're not going to be there all the time. So just like decentralized command, you have to set them up. You have to put a you have to give them guidelines mm-hmm. that they're going to take out there. Commander's intent. They've got to understand right and wrong. They've got to understand long-term goals. They've got to understand consequences. They've got to understand accountability for their actions. Mm-hmm. And they've got to understand, I think this is one of the most important things to keep, teach kids, is they've got to understand how what they're doing today is going to affect their lives in five years, in three years, in 10 years, in 15 years. Mm -hmm. The things that you're doing today, and some adults don't even get that, unfortunately. That what you're doing today is going to affect you long term. And there were some times, you know, where I slid into that, you know, where you're in the SEAL teams, you just don't think it's going to last forever. Mm. You know, so you're just going to do what you're going to do. And so that, that's commander's intent. That's giving your subordinate leadership, which is your kids, the understanding, just like Mao said, the understanding of why they're doing what they're doing, why their health matters, why their education matters, why respecting people matters, why creativity matters, all these different things, explaining them why so that they understand so that when they are out there and they have to make a decision, they have to, they have to choose that they understand why the decision matters and therefore they can act appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you have to do as a parent who is in fact leading your children through life, yeah. whether you like it or not. Yeah. And then and the, I think that that's boom. A, a good, <laughs> that's a good move. Not getting... T- too deep into specific things about how you specifically parent because they're like is there even such thing as perfect parenting everyone like everyone's desires for the the way their kids turn out is different some people want their you know their kid to be this free spirit travel the world don't get nailed and guess what that kid's gonna do gonna join the military at 18 right well that depends they're gonna rebel potentially yes (laughs) so yeah that depends and and i think that the the um 
oh, back to what you were saying about like some even some adults don't know the, the consequences of your actions. That's that goes on the, in the front of your brain here, and that's the last part to develop as a human being. It's the last part of your brain. That's why that's why like teenage boys especially, right? Teenage 16, 17, 18, they get equipped with basically all the hardware, but the software, the part that controls it is all jammed up. So they're physically strong, they got hormones, they got a driver's license probably, they have rights now, right? So they go off and they're just basically shooting off their guns with no, you know, no, you know, you know whatever the software is to yeah. You know, so that's when they make mistakes. That's why they make all these these crazy mistakes with their fr- easily influenced through friends because the part of their brain that that helps um, determine, okay, this this consequence is going to come along with this specific action is underdeveloped. And on average, and it gives you know it's give or take, but on average it gets fully developed at about 24, 25 years old. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. So that's as, as far as decision-making. So, so yeah, that and that, that pr- probably explains why dealing with teenagers becomes harder because yeah. they have all this hardware and the software is still trying to be updated. Um, but back to the perfect parent thing, there's no real perfect parent. People want different things for their kid, and everyone's different. Everyone has different philosophies. Do I spank them? Do I not spank them? I read this. I read that. So the outcome is going to be different, and those different outcomes are going to appeal to different people. Yeah. So it's basically like if you have a specific outcome that you want your kid to have, it's going to be determined by a bunch of things. But I think in my in my experience and both being a parent and having parents, so to speak, um, is consistency. Like if you if you have a message or you know some kind of discipline that you're imposing or some kind of just idea that you want to you want to to stick with your kids, be consistent on it. Don't you know? Don't say, hey, no jumping on the bed one day and then the next day you don't feel you're lazy or tired or whatever and you don't say hey don't jump on the bed because they're going to be like oh well is this the day i can jump on the bed or is it not i want to jump on the bed when you're not looking guess what i'm going to be doing because i know that's not when you say but if you're no jumping on the bed jump, no jump on the bed, they're just going to say okay there's no jumping on the bed because they're going to be influenced by somebody they're going to get rules and how do i act how do i be what do i say what don't i say they're going to get that from somebody and if you're all inconsistent, you might as well just be noise on the TV that comes on sometimes. If you're inconsistent with it, they're going to get it from, I don't know, someone who's more consistent. That could be the neighbor. That could be TV. That could be the kid that they look up to in school who's not very smart or maybe is smart. I don't know. There's a teacher, you know, the drug dealer, whoever. They're going to get it from somewhere. So I think if you be consistent, they'll get it from you. And the more things that you that are conducive to their success in whatever whatever you consider success the more or success, the more consistency you display in regards to those things because you know the outcome you know the outcome that they want you know that if they act a certain way it's going to facilitate this certain outcome you know that or you should hope yeah, I hope you do. So if you just can remain consistent on those issues to shape that, yeah, that's when it's going to work. Th- I'm going to throw one more wrench into your system. I was kind of agreeing with what you're saying, but I just want to throw this out there for everybody. If you got kids, in my opinion, your kids are not going to be who you want them to be. They're going to be them. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest hurdle to get over mentally. I had to get, I did, I thought that the kids were going to be what I wanted them to be, <laughs> but guess what? They're not, they're going to be what they are. They're humans, and I got four kids, and every one of them is completely different from the other one. They all came from me, 
but they're all and they all got raised with the same me and my same wife and yet they're all radically different yeah why is that it's because they're different humans and so if you try and impose your vision on your kids it will not be successful yeah and they will have a meltdown at some point that's my opinion i could be wrong but that's my opinion and I am not an expert on parenting, yeah. and I don't want to uh, people to uh, obey my thoughts on parenting. But I got asked the question, so I answered it, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, that's true. It's, and so much has to do with their environment. In fact, it's it's yeah, so much has to do with their environment. So where each kid, like let's okay, you have four kids, right? The first kid. Coming, you know, coming into the world and boom, I'm yeah, the, first the first kid. born, the psychology and all this yeah, stuff. That's but it. That's... And I'm not even saying necessarily, I'm not going to go into the psychology part of it. I'm just saying, boom, that's a different experience altogether. Being the second kid, same thing. He has that one kid and then all these little kids behind him, you know, so it's just, you're just right out the gate. You're a different person, you yes. know, so that's where you're going to see all, all these crazy different personalities. We, we were born, we were raised in the same house, same parents, my parents were the same the whole time, but just starting out. It's like you ever you ever you ever see Price is Right that game, um, or the game show Price is Right. Remember old school Bob Barker? I think it's somebody else now. Anyway, oh, okay. there's a game called Plinko, and it's this this. Is this a long exploding? You <laughs> 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 Plinko where it's like this board, right? And at the end is are these little slots, and you drop this kind of this. It's not a ball. It's like a little puck that kind of goes, but. I get the image. It's like these pins, so it goes beep, beep, beep. It, it randomly just go, mm-hmm. beep, beep, it'll go through this, one. and you can kind of—I forget if you can control it or not. You can't. But yeah, so as just a parent, like you, you can control the board, but there's so many different little things that it can hit and go this way. So if you're consistent and just consistently push yeah. one direction, it'll tend to go. But then all this, all these other factors are in play that you can't control. So. It's eventually, that's how it is, and that's true. How, how you say you can't just shape exactly who you want to be. Nope. In Plinko, you don't say, "Hey, I'm gonna get it in that little slot right there," and then it goes there every time. It's really hard to do that, you know. Plinko game. Bro, I'm telling you, Plinko. You look into it. It's the same thing. It's exact Plinko parenting. Maybe we same need to thing. sell Jocko podcast Plinko boards on here. <laughs> See, now you've gone too far. All right. Next question. Be careful with your kids is all I'm saying. Yeah, be and careful. Give be them careful the be guidance. Consistent. Give them the broad guidance. Yeah. Consistent. That's what you want to give them. Why health matters, why education matters, why respect matters, why creativity matters. Let them understand why so that they can make their own decisions because they are their own people. It's a true story. Next question. So what do you think about CrossFit? Seems you do a lot of the same movements and workout schemes. So CrossFit, I think CrossFit is a is a solid base for things. I also think that CrossFit actually deserves a pretty good amount of credit for getting the general populace of the world moving in the right direction when it comes to fitness. Uh, I've been doing CrossFit type stuff before there was such a thing as CrossFit. The, I mean, the movements that you use in CrossFit are are movements that have, they didn't invent anything new right but they did reintroduce it's kind of like the gracie family to be honest with you and and there's you know both the gracie family and crossfit in my opinion are responsible for really a paradigm shift in those two arenas the mm-hmm. arena of fitness and the arena of martial arts mm-hmm. if you looked at martial arts in the 70s and the 80s 
what was it? It was it was karate, it was kung fu, it was aikido, it was traditional martial arts, it was not full contact sparring, it was it was just radically different than what it is now. Mm. And that came from the Gracie family who created the UFC and broadcast it and got the information out there and spread the word of jiu-jitsu, which part of jiu-jitsu and part of the UFC is that you have to learn to wrestle and you have to learn to strike. So that all kind of came afterwards, but it's all related to the initial the initial birth mm-hmm. of of the UFC and Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And that's the same thing in my opinion with CrossFit. You know, CrossFit again where people doing Olympic lifting years ago, yes they were, but it's a very small if you uh, okay, you look at the the martial arts schools in the seventies, look at fitness places in yeah. the, in the seventies and eighties. It was, uh, those weird, you know, machines and aerobic stuff. And the mm-hmm. thing that w- women would like tie around their stomachs and would like shake them. I mean, yeah. just all kinds of bizarre, a uh, bizarre stuff. And mm-hmm. it, that, that's just stuff that was just ineffective. And so I think CrossFit deserves credit for, um, spreading you know the, the the knowledge of squatting and cleaning jerks and pull-ups and muscle-ups and all those things and so you know again i like i said it's you've got there were decathletes before crossfit there were olympic lifters gymnasts before mm-hmm. crossfit and those people were incredibly fit but crossfit popularized those activities and those exercises more than anybody else was able to. I mean, CrossFit is popular, and Jiu-Jitsu is popular. I mean, if you look at the number of Jiu-Jitsu schools and CrossFit boxes in the country, mm-hmm. they're probably of the same growth pattern. Mm-hmm. So um, I definitely give CrossFit credit for bringing that kind of well-balanced fitness to the forefront. And I think the programming, you know, is fine. Uh, for me, it's a little bit too random. I like stuff to be a little bit more scheduled, I guess you could say. And sometimes I need more volume than what they have. Uh, and I think you need more focus to get really good at some things. You need to fo- you need to do them more often than the 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 straight CrossFit would prescribe. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, now people realize, you know, for a while they kind of held the line of like, no, all you need to do is what it says to do on the CrossFit workout of the day. Mm. Just like in the beginning, Jiu-Jitsu, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu said, all you need to do is just do Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And clearly both those attitudes are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, what you really need to do is get that base and then open your mind, open your mind up. Mm-hmm. And you get to know yourself what your you get to know your own physicality after a while, and then you know what your weaknesses are, and you know what hurts you, and you know what you can do more of, and you know what you should do less of. So I think that as a base, you know, like if someone just randomly says, you know, hey, I never worked out before, what should I do? I think CrossFit is a fine place to point them. You know, there's some other really good stuff out there, but you know, if you, yeah, CrossFit's a good one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good starting point. It's going to teach you the basics of squats and pull-ups and dips. And there's going to be a million people that are going to say, they don't really teach you Olympic lifting properly and you need to learn better form. I get it, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, if you want to learn to be an Olympic lifter, CrossFit is not going to be the best place to learn to be an Olympic lifter. You need to go get an Olympic lifting coach. Yeah. 
Uh, if you want to be a great gymnast, you need to get a gymnastics coach. But if you want an introduction to this stuff, a basic introduction, then I think it's a solid. And again, I think you need to give it credit for what it did. And then most importantly, you need to keep an open mind mm -hmm. that things change and you will, you have to change. We all have to change and adapt and grow and evolve mm -hmm. so that you can become better. So that's my opinion. Yeah, the, the CrossFit, undeniably, what it what it did is took working out. And some CrossFit workouts can be hard. I did CrossFit for a little bit. And um, even for someone who's, like, in pretty good shape, like, they can be hard. And what an element of CrossFit that I, I'm not sure if this was intended from the beginning, but it got this way quick, is, is kind of the group supportive oh, environment, you know. Um, so... What it did was it turned it into – now it's a sport. Yeah. It's a straight-up sport now. Yeah. And, and really all it is is exercising, the yeah. sport of exercising. Yeah. being And who, who the guy who wins the CrossFit Games, what's he called? The fittest guy. Mm -hmm. right? He's fit. So it brought fitness into this more of an activity to, to do rather than, okay, you got to do this chore. You got to work out. It made it into like an activity, like boom. And not just, okay, I'm going to go do some easy stuff with, you know, the girls on the weekend. It's it's for real, you know, like a, a hard workout. going to put you through. You get in a group in a CrossFit situation, and they're going to be yelling, supporting you. And it, it's way easier to stick with a workout program when you have people supporting you and they support you like for real support you they're yelling at you finish 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 all, all this stuff and you're way more likely to achieve success rather than someone's like oh hey are you gonna make it to the gym today oh yeah maybe maybe not or whatever and they give you good guidance so again it made it made fitness quote-unquote fitness be popular you mm -hmm. know this was this cool thing you know and a community you know in a way that i don't it's I mean, like you said, there's there was already some of these, but they're like, okay, bodybuilding and, you know, I don't know, maybe some aerobics, but it didn't have that sense of community oh, like yeah. CrossFit it, does. So much more. I mean, you look at a company like Rogue Fitness. Yeah. I mean, they didn't exist, I don't know, five years ago, but mm. it, like I have a, I, my old squat rack thing was ancient, right? And it was kind of hard to get back in the day. You want a squat rack now? Boom. Yeah. Rogue Fitness is a oh, boom. Oh, there you go. Yeah. They're going to send it to you. It's going to show up at your house in, in three days. Yep. And they're selling hundreds of thousands of them, I'm sure. Yep. And and why is that? They're selling rings. They're selling boxes for boxes. Bumper plates. Bumper plates used to be, you'd never yeah, see yep. them. Like yep. I, had, I had bumper plates in the Y where I grew up. Yeah. And there was, you know, two guys that would actually Olympic lift. And you go, oh, wow, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But never in a gym. Now you go to any, almost any gym now. No, no, almost. I shouldn't say that because the the 24-hour fitness type Globo gyms. Yes, they do. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah. I haven't been in one in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I avoid them. It's kind of yeah. Easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, all over, all over. Out. And and there's over here, and I, I still have 24-hour fitness, fitness membership. I'll go there, you know, from time to time. Yeah, and all of them have straight up, um, you know, protein. Greg. Yeah. Um, he's a trainer. And he's at the the Balboa one, big, full on. Brad, you want to get a, your CrossFit on? You can go to Twenty Four Hour Fitness. Of course, it's more crowded. It's not yeah, crowded. Yeah, yeah. It's different. The, the the culture is different, right. which is a big part of CrossFit as well. But facility wise, oh yeah, bumpers all up in there. Yeah, all so that too. that's that's all thanks to CrossFit. Right. Yeah. It, it, that's exactly your point. You know. Yeah. yeah. Good deal. <clears throat> Next question. Any tips on learning about indirect communication? 
would be handy for business or parenting. I've got another parent. I got a million parenting questions. So yeah, see, again, I'm avoiding. And like I was saying, that that's kind of why you can't really just talk about some because it, there's actually, if you want to quantify the parenting questions, there's infinity parenting yeah, right. questions. There's no end to the parenting question <laughs> because it's just so ambiguous. I don't even and, know. Like, I mean, really, the bottom what is, line is the bottom line is parenting is leadership, so the principles can be applied. Yeah. But there are some dynamics there, and they're all in your own head. Yeah. That's where they are. Mm-hmm. They're you're in your own head as a parent. They're this emotional thing that you have stronger than you have it for any other person you're ever going to work with. And that is, you know, you want them to succeed more than anybody else. Yeah. You want them to succeed. You want them to be better. You want them to do better. You all those things. And that's the dynamic that makes it tricky. Yeah. And then there's this weird dynamic too of the way they look at you and they mm-hmm. either want to impress you or they want to rebel against you or they see you as being you know, imposing on them. So there's just these other dynamics you know, within the leadership confine that are that are very challenging. Yeah. And again, I can't judge whether I've been successful yet because I only have a, my oldest daughter is 16, yeah. my youngest daughter is six, and and then I have a daughter, another daughter, and son in the middle. And then I know that there are specific mistakes that I have made. I know that, and. Yeah. But I, you even know. then, mistakes. Like, what does that mean? You know, I mean, of course, you know, mistakes yeah. if you go too extreme. But because really successful, or I don't say successful, but really driven people, people who are just, you know, how you get somebody who's yes. really driven. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, think I, I do. Might know know. <laughs> but it's be, usually, usually because some need, some during development wasn't fulfilled. And I'm not saying, and you can't even say it's a bad thing because as a result. They're driven because psychologically it's like a need that needs to be fulfilled. So since that little cup remained kind of empty a little bit, they're trying to fill it with all these other things because life went on, new skills, new developments, new situations. And they're still trying to fill that little psychological cup and it's manifesting in this other way, you know, through business, through, you know, being a Navy SEAL, <laughs> jiu-jitsu champion, you know, whatever it may be. But, yeah. but typically, and I'm saying every single time, I'm sure there's exceptions. Or maybe there's not exceptions. I don't know. But nonetheless, you can usually find some need that went unfulfilled somewhere for people who are super driven. So if you made a mistake parenting, is was that really a mistake, you know, in, in that kind of situation? So like I said, the point is it's it's so ambiguous. You know, you think you've been – like what is a successful parent? Yeah, that's, I mean, unless that's you're my point. That's why I don't want to talk to area. people about parenting because I don't yeah. know – I don't feel like an authority on it right. that should be yeah. giving instruction. Yeah, it's hard to even – how can you be? I mean, I think I'm doing an okay job. Well, yeah, so you <laughs> figure if they're not in jail or, or super addicted to like drugs or something <laughs> like this, or, or then you can say, okay, I'm, I, think, I think, in my opinion, I'm yeah. within the confines of being a successful person. And you know what? Since we're talking about it, you see some kids – I've known kids, you know, kids I grew up with with nice parents and all that, and they go off the rails. Yeah. And and that's really scary. You, do you blame the parents? I mean, Ooh. I don't know. In my opinion, it's because of the parents, yes. But that's not the question, though. Do you blame yeah. the parents? I don't know. And we got a question on here about nature and nurture, so I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. But okay. Indirect communication. Yeah, though. let's get back to this. So indirect communication is obviously extremely powerful. It's also tricky to pull off because... You can't let your emotions show and you can't just speak your mind. You have to think. 
about what you're going to say. You have to think about how it will be received and understood by the person or by the people that you're talking to. You got to put yourself into their shoes and hear it from their perspective. And that's really hard to do. And the other piece about this, another piece to think about if you're trying to improve your indirect communication, go into your conversations with a goal, not just a goal of the conversation itself, but a a strategic goal of what you're trying to accomplish, a commander's intent. Why are you having this conversation? (coughs) What is the end game? What is the end state? Where are you trying to, what are you trying to make happen? Yeah. And keep that in mind as you talk to this person or this group of people and then read and react to see how you're saying and and how much what you're saying is leading to the end state that you're looking for. Because sometimes we just think about the conversation itself and the conversation itself doesn't matter. What are you trying to do in the end state? It's like we talked about before a few podcasts ago, the argument that you're having Whether you're right or whether you're wrong doesn't matter. What matters is the end state. Where are you trying to get this to be? What are you, how are you trying to influence this person? And remember that the best way to win is for your opponent to not even realize that there's a debate. That's the best way to win. And you get some people, some people instinctively counter everything that you say. Yeah. They have a response. They have a thing. They, they're going to counter everything that you say. Don't do that. If you want to work on your indirect communication skills, absorb what they're saying. Right? The best way to get better at indirect communication is to listen. Listen. Mm-hmm. Not talk, but listen. And as a matter of fact, when you sit back and you let people talk, You're progressing so much because most people don't want to listen. Most people want to run their mouths. Mm -hmm. And if you ever find yourself running your mouth, you should put yourself in check because you're giving away too much information. And so you want to listen. You want to try to actually understand what they're saying. And here's another good one. If you don't understand what they're saying, just ask them to explain it again. Mm -hmm. Hey, can you, can you explain that to me again? I missed it. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Mm. I, with the, well, that implies that I want to understand. It implies that I'm doing my best to understand. Mm. It implies that if I don't understand, I'm going to be frank enough with you to tell you. That is how you get better at indirect communication. Because the more you listen to somebody, the better you understand their position. And when you know where someone's position is, the better you can maneuver onto that position. The better you can get to a flank, the better you can make adaptations. And the better tactics you have to win. And that's how you get better at indirect communication. Yeah, you mentioned how, um, how you don't like if you don't listen and, and you know how how you fail to put yourself in the other person's mm-hmm. shoes, right? There's this thing called the curse of knowledge, right? So let's say I'm this high-level CEO. Sometimes we tend to forget how it is to not be the high-level CEO or how it uh, we forget how it is to not know everything we know. That's a curse of knowledge. Like the knowledge right. basically blocks you from 
identifying with someone who doesn't know. You know, so and that goes into this, these weird details. You know how when you get enough knowledge, certain significant knowledge becomes common sense to you. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, to everyone else, it's not. So you just habitually or unconsciously, you, you might, let's say, skip over it. Right. Meanwhile, they don't really understand. And then you're just like, ah, you know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong kind of thing. It's called the curse of knowledge. You got to watch out for that. Got to watch out for the curse of knowledge. Yes. I like that. I think we got time for uh, one more. One more. Our last question. Jocko, what is more important in being successful at achieving your goals, nature or nurture? Okay. So this is the classic question of nature versus nurture. And in my opinion, it's neither. And my whole life, I've seen people from every different strata. In the SEAL teams, you had everybody. You had Ivy League kids with a silver spoon, and you had former gangbangers and hood rats. And at the same time, you had prep school kids and kids from blue-collar families and everybody in between. There was kids with, with the big, strong families that were really, really close, and you had kids with no families. Kids that were pampered and kids that were abused. Everything. We had everything. And in all of those different groups, there were some people that were successful and got the job done, and some people that were unsuccessful and couldn't get it done. And in working with businesses now, I see the same thing. People from every walk of life, from the bottom to the top, and I've seen every... Type of those different types of people be successful. So to me, it's not about nature or nurture. It's about choice. The people that are successful decide they are going to be successful. They make that choice. And they make other choices. They decide to study hard. They choose to work hard. They choose to be the first person to get to work and the last person to go home. They choose to take on the hard jobs and take on the challenges. They decide that they're going to lead when no one else will. They choose who they're going to hang around with and be associated with and they choose who they're going to emulate. These people choose to become who they want to become. They aren't inhibited by nature or nurture. They overcome both. And I'll tell you something else. It's never too late to make that choice. You're never too old to decide where you're going to focus your efforts and push to make the most out of every situation. So, to me, it's not about what you've been through and where you were. It's about where you're going. And it's about the choices that you make. It's about choosing 
choose to make yourself smarter and stronger and healthier. Choose to work out and study and eat good food and keep your mind clean. Don't let nature or nurture make you. Choose to make yourself. I think that's all I've got for tonight. So, to all you troopers out there on the front lines of the battlefield, on the front lines of life, Thanks for joining us in this conversation. Thanks for listening and subscribing and go crank out a review on iTunes or pin it to your social media. Share it. Let everybody know that we are here and we are moving forward together into the fray. And tell them all that we are not scared of the dark. Because we're here and we're bringing the light. Thanks for connecting with us through the interwebs. And if you don't know, on Twitter, I'm at Jocko Willink. And Echo is at Echo Charles. We also have the Facey book. And with that, I'm, what is it, slash Jocko Willink? No. Oh, wait, wait, you're, yeah. I don't know. I'm Just Jocko look, Willink. Look for Jocko Willink. Yeah, do a little And then we have the podcast one. Right, that's facebook.com slash Jocko Podcast. There you go. And get on there, give us some feedback, give us some questions, let us know what you think of what's going on here. And then we got companies that some companies that support us support them it's true uh for the facebook thing too um I, we don't really post that much on there but what we do post and will post is going to be like quality stuff it won't be just like you know just a bunch of stuff for 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 quantity content It'll yeah be like i haven't quality. quite got down my system i've definitely we went every question that is posted on either of the facebook's I am definitely taking in and putting it into the question bank. That doesn't mean it's going to get answered on the podcast because right. we don't have time to answer thousands of questions. Yeah. But I'm definitely looking at it. I'm yeah. reading it. Sometimes if I see a, um, a, a trend of the same question, right. boom, I see it four, five, six times, unless it's about parenting. <laughs> but if I, see, like yeah, if I see something four or five times, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it on there. And and we'll talk about it. Some of them I just answer because I know, hey, you know what? No one cares about this question, but mm. you, whoever you are, somebody's going to give you a short answer, or maybe it's a long answer. Mm. Um, and so yeah, if you get on there, I'm looking at it. You know, yeah. I haven't quite got down my system for right. Facebook yet. Mm. I I only just recently am starting to figure it out um, mm. the different parts of it because I've never used it before and I didn't use it that actively. Mm. So I'm trying to get better at it. Um, but that's why Twitter is really easy for me. It's yeah, like it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Facebook and Facebook's always changing as well. But in in regards to them, um, like 
because what you do is like Twitter, you just like the page, right? It's like follow. So mm-hmm. you like it, it follows. Um, but some pages, man, you, you, you follow it, and then it's a bunch of stuff that it's like, and eh, this is starting to be not that relevant. Maybe once a week I'll see some relevant stuff. Mm. So what um, what I'm going to do is like anything I post is going to be very relevant or even like, you know, like a, like a you know how we record before mm-hmm. we start recording? I might post some deleted scenes. Oh, or deleted like scenes. Yeah. Humor. Just Humor. every once in a while. So, you know, no harm, no foul if you like just that. like it, like even that. if you don't want to answer a question or ask a question. But please ask the question. Yeah, and no, I'm trying to get to respond to some of the comments, you know what I mean? Try yeah. And, try and get on there every once in a while. Right. Yeah, I think the Twitter is, is, is easier, just like how you said, because it's yeah. just super Boom. simple. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. But either way, they're both great. Um Onit.com slash Jocko. That's where you get your 10% off your supplements. And their their supplements are so good, man. Like you and and I, I'm not super into supplements. That's a thing. But the ones that I take and you, you, it's hard to tell the difference a lot of times between brands. But you can tell the difference with these brands. And it, like the Worry Bar, for example. In my opinion, that's one of the most genius things. Someone, <laughs> it is you know, because like genius. beef jerky. Remember yeah, yeah, when beef jerky yeah. came, beef jerky or not when it came out? It's a warrior but, bar. No, not even close. But when you saw beef jerky as someone who's into protein, you know, when you're, I don't know, yeah. when I turned like 15, 16, started lifting, beef jerky was, dang, that is dope. Whoever in, invented that. I used to carry all the time. Yeah. So consider the warrior bar is like, yeah, way better. It's like <laughs> beef jerky, but... But the awesome. Real deal. But yeah, it's super <laughs> awesome. Anyway, so anyway, that my point is the stuff on Onnit is is good, and you get ten percent off. So that's like a no brainer. Um, yeah, onnit.com slash jocko. There you go. And then the Amazon click through, you go to the the podcast website, which is um, jockopodcast.com or jockostore.com, either one, and you click through to the Amazon before you do your shopping, and you can passively support. Well. Slightly active. Semi, semi-actively. It's pretty support. passive. It doesn't yeah, cost just you anything. Click. Yeah, exactly. And then um, a lot of people ask for the donation link, and that's on jockopodcast.com. Through PayPal. Uh, yeah, it's, it uses PayPal real simple, but uh, but it's on there nonetheless. You know, For everyone that does that, man, it's so cool to be like, this guy just liked what you were saying, and he was like, here's some money. That is. That's Dang, awesome. Dang, that's, yeah. That's how we I pay for microphones away. and video cameras. Hey, man, you know. And, or you get a shirt. Get a shirt on JockoStore.com. It's pretty yeah. cool. One has Jocko's head on it with the word good <laughs> backwards. So when you look in the mirror, it tells you good. When things are going bad. There's always some good that comes from Echo. it. Echo. Keeping go. it real. Some stickers and mugs as well. Anyway, um, there it is. And there they are. Nice. And uh, also, if you want some more of this stuff, I referenced it several times tonight, but a buddy of mine, Leif Babin, my brother, we wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. It's available in hardcover, Kindle, or audiobook. And we actually read the audiobook. So if you want to hear us talking more, there's eight hours you can you can get yourself into. War stories and leadership. And it's good times. And finally, uh, and most importantly, thanks for making the choice. The choice to make yourself better, faster, stronger, smarter, healthier. And of course, thanks to everyone for making the choice to get up, get going, get aggressive, and get after it. So until next time, this is Jocko and Echo.
out.